Coldwater, Michigan, Easter weekend, 1980. An unsolved mystery case file becomes solved when a 46-year-old Dennis Depoo is wanted for the murder of his ex-wife of 18 years, Marilyn. The couple lived in Coldwater, Michigan, and had three children together, Jennifer, Julie, and Scott. Dennis was a property assessor and high school guidance counselor, while Marilyn was a doting wife and homemaker. Their marriage became tumultuous throughout the years as Dennis and Marilyn drifted apart. After confiding in friends and family, Marilyn knew that she needed a way out. In December 1989, the Depew's divorce became finalized as a withdrawn dentist accused his now ex-wife that she was turning the children against him. Dennis was granted bi-weekly visitations, but the children were often afraid of being left alone and forced to spend time with him. These hardships concerning the welfare of the children came to a head on Easter Sunday, April 15, 1990, when Dennis arrived at Marilyn's house to pick up the children for their visit. The youngest daughter and son refused to go with him, and as Marilyn made an attempt to talk and reason with Dennis, he became irate and very violent, shoving Marilyn down a flight of stairs, her head colliding with the basement wall. As the children begged for their father to stop attacking their mom, the oldest daughter ran over to the neighbor's house to call the police. Seriously injured, Dennis carried Marilyn to his vehicle as he tells the children he's taking their mom to the hospital to get checked out. However, Dennis and Marilyn never arrived. Unbeknownst to Dennis, an unsuspecting couple taking a leisurely Sunday cruise through the Michigan countryside would become witness to an impromptu burial. Marie Thornton and her husband Ray, recent in an interview given to producers of the hit television series Unsolved Mysteries, stated they saw a van, matching the one driven by Depew. They stated that it hurriedly passed them and stopped by the old one-room schoolhouse near Snow Perry Road, outside of Coldwater. It was there that Marie sees a man carrying a bloody sheet out of the back of a van. Thanks to Marie's quick thinking, she jots down the license plate number before driving off. Out of nowhere, the couple are followed by the man in the van only for him to pull off to the side of the highway and switch license plates as a last-ditch attempt to conceal his identity. This scene, witnessed by the Thorntons, has in recent years been recreated in the opening sequence of the 2001 horror movie Jeepers Creepers. Police were called to the schoolhouse where tire tracks are discovered and match those at Depew's van. The blood recovered on the sheet belonged to Marilyn. The next day, highway workers would stumble upon the crudely buried body of Marilyn Depew near Bethel Township. She had been shot once in the back of the head. Dennis Depew went off on the run, not before leaving behind 17 rambling letters to his friends and family, explaining his reasons for killing Marilyn and why he felt his actions were justified. This case would become solved when a woman known only as Mary was watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries at her home in Dallas, Texas on March 20th, 1991. 
her boyfriend, known to Mary as Hank Queen, became erratic, explaining to Mary that he needed to make an emergency visit home because his mother was gravely ill and asked if she could make some sandwiches to take with him. This was a brilliant tactic performed by Hank as it pulled Mary away from the television, and in the background, the case of wanted murderer Dennis DePew continued to play. As he gathered a few things hastily and bid his love goodbye, Mary could later tell producers there was something off about Hank, and she had a foreboding feeling that she would never see her boyfriend again. That is, until she learned of Hank's true identity, and that he was wanted for the murder of his ex-wife. One of Mary's friends contacted Unsolved Mysteries and gave information on the van that Hank drove, matching that of Dennis DePew's. Within hours, authorities would track down DePew to a Louisiana-Mississippi state border. A high-speed chase ensued as DePew broke through two police barricades before having his front tire shot by police. Around 4 a.m., DePew fired two shots through his windshield aimed at deputies before turning his gun on himself and taking his own life. Sheriff Paul Barrett shared with Unsolved Mysteries that he believed that DePew intended to die that night, whether it was by the police or by Dennis himself. Marilyn was laid to rest in cold water, surrounded by her grieving family and friends as they remembered the beautiful soul that was taken by the monster of cold water. The town of Apple Creek is known to many as being part of Ohio's Amish country. Several communities that make up the second largest Amish and Mennonite population in the United States. Typically, when the general public thinks about the Amish, they think of horse and buggies, plain clothes, and in an almost ancestral way of life. However, they never think of someone from the Amish community being a serial killer. For Eli Strutzman, he was not the stereotypical Amish man. For those that knew him in the community, Eli was known for rebelling against his Amish beliefs, especially since his father was one of the most respected members of the community, the bishop of the church. Tragedy struck the Strutman family in 1977 when Eli's eight-month pregnant wife, Ida, was trapped in a barn fire and burned to death. When questioned by police, Eli's stories were constantly changing. One of these stories told the police was that the barn had been struck by lightning and his wife went into the barn to save their expensive milking equipment used to make a living. Could it be because he was talking to two non-Amish people who served justice outside of the community, or was it because he had something to hide? Usually, when something bad happens within the parameters of the Amish community, the bishop and the deacons serve as the church, judge, and jury, and come to some sort of conclusion. Rumors started within the community that Eli trapped his wife in the barn to kill her because he didn't want to have another child, since the couple already had a 10-month-old son at the time of her death. After the death of his wife, Eli spiraled into waves of depression as he began renouncing his Amish ways, putting him at risk of being shunned by the church. For example, he installed electricity in his house and shaved off his beard, which is the equivalent of a non-Amish man taking off his wedding band. 
he also started traveling more and more, picking up work wherever he could. In 1982, Eli and his son moved to Colorado to start a new life. Years later, on May 12, 1985, the body of a man named Glenn Pritchett was discovered lying on the side of the road in Texas, a single gunshot wound to the head. Come to find out, he was the roommate of Eli Strutzman, but when police went to question him about the death of his roommate, he was nowhere to be found. On December 25, 1985, another body is discovered in a ditch off a deserted side road, this time in Chester, Nebraska. This young man's identity was unknown for two years, dubbed the Little Boy in Blue, by the media and authorities who had no idea how the deceased passed. Two years later, the boy was finally identified. His name was Daniel Strutzman, the son of Eli and Ida Strutzman. Prior to Danny's death, he had been left in the care of a family member in Colorado while Eli was out working and traveling. Fort Worth authorities were hot on Eli's trail, armed with the charge of a child abuse. When apprehended, Eli told police that Danny's death was the result of a throat infection while traveling from Wyoming back to Ohio. Eli had contacted family in Ohio and expressed that, while Danny was driving with him back to Ohio from Wyoming, Danny had become gravely ill and passed away during the drive. Eli panicked and dumped his son's body in the ditch because he was now in God's hands. Finally, an autopsy was performed on Daniel, and the coroner concluded that Daniel's death was inconclusive and not able to pinpoint exactly how or when he passed. However, this didn't stop authorities from charging Eli with concealing a death and abandoning a body. Receiving a sentence of 18 months in jail, during the time Eli was in jail, he was also charged with the death of Glenn Pritchett and sentenced to 40 years in prison. While behind prison walls, police received information that Strutman had other victims besides his son and Pritchett. Two men from Durango, Colorado by the names of David Tyler and Dennis Sleever were also killed in 1985, who appeared to be friends with Strutzman at the time, as well as local drug dealers and members of the gay community, which Eli also belonged to. Tyler was shot outside of his auto body shop while Sleever outside a liquor store where he was employed. A twist in this case, Strutman was never charged with the Durango murders due to the lack of evidence, but was considered a key suspect at the time. In a strange turn of events, Strutman was released from prison in 2005 after only serving a total of 13 years and moved into a Fort Worth apartment. Upon his release, and for a subsequent time afterwards, he had mainly kept to himself. But all this came to a head on January 31st, 2007. Eli's neighbors called the police to do a welfare check on him, since they hadn't seen him in several days. It was at this time that police discovered that Eli had taken his own life in his apartment at the age of 56. According to the autopsy, Eli's left arm suffered from blunt force trauma as well as findings of a large amount of cocaine in his system and that he was HIV positive. Although Eli is defined as being a serial killer, he was never formally charged with the murders of Ida Strutman, David Tyler, nor Dennis Sleever. 
An old Amish proverb sums up the conclusion to this particular case. Everything changes with one good decision or one bad one. The Babysitter and The Man Upstairs are classic urban legends that scare even the most tame of people. Its popularity also introduced several horror and suspense movies like When a Stranger Calls and John Carpenter's Halloween, as well as The Severed Arm. But what happens when urban legends turn out to be true? The gruesome and brutal murders of two young women from Columbia, Missouri, originated the urban legend and brought it too close to home for those who reside there. On the evening of March 18, 1950, 13-year-old Janet Chrisman was babysitting for the Rumach family's three-year-old son, George. It was on this night that Janet was overcome by a feeling of foreboding and like she was being watched. When Mrs. Romach called to check on Janet and see how her little boy was sleeping, there was no answer on the line, only the tone of a busy signal sounding in her ear. Little did Mrs. Romach know was that, although her little boy was safe and sound, Janet had been brutally sexually assaulted, suffered circular puncture wounds on her body, and was strangled with a thick ironing cord. Janet's friend Carol recalls the night that Janet died since she was also babysitting for a family across town. It was kind of an eerie night. Carol shares her account many years later with documentary filmmakers Joshua Zeman and Rachel Mills while filming the true crime urban legends documentary, Killer Legends. Before Janet was attacked by her assailant, she had been on the phone with emergency dispatchers. The only sound that they heard on the other line was Janet's desperate cries for help and painful screams before all went quiet. Unfortunately, police were unable to trace the call back to the Romach house and Janet succumbed to her injuries. Her body was discovered by the Romachs at 1.30 a.m. lying on their living room floor. Police also found flecks of skin and blood underneath her fingernails, indicating that she attempted to fight off her attacker. Although the urban legend reads that the killer and or stalker had been making phone calls from inside the house, there was no evidence to determine if Janet actually received menacing phone calls from inside or outside the Romach house before her death. The Romach house also suffered damage during the attack. One theory brought up by the police was that the attacker broke into the house via the side window that had been smashed by a garden hoe and a sawhorse placed directly underneath the window. However, the Romachs contradict this claim by telling police that their garden hoe remained untouched in the shed where it had always stayed. Another theory was that the porch light had been left on and the door unlocked, indicating speculations that Janet may have known her killer and invited him inside. The Romach shotgun that usually stayed by the front door was also left untouched. Although dozens of men throughout Colombia were questioned in regards to Janet's murder, their main man in question was 27-year-old Robert Mueller. He was a classmate of Ed Romack and often hired babysitters to care for his own children. Mueller knew intimate details about Janet, including the fact that she had been a virgin before she was attacked, and often commented on her well-developed form. 
Mueller was also known to carry mechanical pencils with him, having worked as a tailor in town. The pencil matched the puncture wounds left on Janet at the time of her death. On the night of Janet's murder, Robert Mueller called Janet's home to inquire if she could babysit for his family, unaware that she was already promised to sit for the Romax. With this knowledge, it is possible that Mueller knew that Janet would be alone and went over to the Romax to make sexual advances towards Janet. When she declined and asked him to leave, he sexually assaulted her and strangled her with the appliance cord. However, this is only one of several theories. Janet's murder is still unsolved to this day and is almost identical to another murder of a young woman who also babysat for families in Columbia that occurred four years before Janet's. Her name was Mary Lou Jenkins, and she was 20 at the time of her death. Like Janet, she had been sexually assaulted and strangled with a cord from an electrical appliance in her own home. According to police, neighbors thought they heard the shrill screams and cries of a woman, but later chalked it up to similar cries made by rabbits. Several weeks after Mary Lou's murder, police arrested a troubled man named Floyd Cochran on suspicions of killing Mary Lou after shooting and killing his wife, May, with a 12-gauge shotgun after an argument at their home. Although there was no physical evidence to connect Floyd to Mary Lou's murder, he was interrogated for two days before making a confession. During the time that the case occurred, racial tension was very high, and a lynch mob formed outside the police station to hang Floyd, who was African American, for sexually attacking a Caucasian woman. He was convicted and sentenced to death, although many people believe that his confession was coerced and his sentence was biased, having an all-white jury and a white judge. For Floyd's last meal at the Missouri State Penitentiary, he requested a T-bone steak, french fries, scalped corn, cream gravy, bread, butter, coffee, and cake. Before he had the opportunity to eat, he was blindfolded and carried off to the gas chamber and was executed on September 26, 1947. After Floyd's execution, many lucrative behaviors started occurring in the town between 1947 and 1950, including acts of peeping and more sexual assaults. Another African-American male named Jake Bradford had been arrested and convicted of peeping, also confessing to committing multiple sexual assaults through Columbia. This was believed to be another coerced confession brought on by police and still had no connection to Mary Lou's murder. A strange coincidence is mentioned, though, in connection to Mary Lou's murder, and that she knew Robert Mueller. With Janet's case, Mueller began acting odd and asking Romach if he needed help cleaning up their house. At the time, this was not public knowledge. He goes on to explain to Romach that there's no way the killer would have gone through the window because he would have made too much noise and spoiling the stealth factor. He concluded that if the killer wanted to gain access inside the house, all he needed to do was say that he wanted to borrow a set of poker chips that he knew Ed, Romach, had. When Mueller was brought in for questioning by police, he passed a polygraph test and, due to circumstantial evidence, Mueller was never arrested nor convicted of the murder. However, Mueller sued the investigators in civil court for defamation of character and violation of civil rights for the amount of $300,000.
Mueller did lose the lawsuit and moved his family to the western coast of the United States. Unfortunately, even with advances in forensic evidence and technology, there are no new leads in either Janet or Mary Lou's cases as they remain unsolved. What we thought was just an urban legend used to scare people around a campfire are often based on true crimes and events. Which makes us ask the age-old question, have you checked the children? On May 10th, 1967, three young boys from the sleepy, picturesque town of Hannibal, Missouri set out on an adventure, but never made it back home. Just like their hometown heroes Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, the boys had an aptitude for exploration, and one of their favorite activities was to spelunk a nearby cave known to locals as Murphy's Cave. Murphy's Cave, along with other Missouri caves, was once owned by eclectic mad doctor Joseph Nash McDowell in 1840 in which he carried out experiments on cadavers in the caves, including his own 14-year-old daughter, Amanda. As legend goes, he believed he could use her body to contact spirits. The mad doctor had placed her body in a large jar of alcohol and hung it from the top of the cave, as Amanda's spirit is said to haunt the cave to this day. The entrance to Murphy's Cave has been blasted off from Highway 79, just south of Hannibal, but while working construction workers didn't put up any sort of danger signs to detour potential explorers, like brothers Joel, Joey, and Billy Hogue, 13 and 11, and their friend Craig Dowell, 14. On that fateful day, the boys were walking home from school when they decided to make an impromptu visit to the cave later that night. After a stern warning by their parents to avoid going near the caves and were subsequently grounded, the boys managed to sneak out of their houses, shovels and flashlights in hand, as they made their trek to the south side of town to where the caves were located. Joel, Billy, and Craig were officially listed as missing the next day, as the largest cave search in contemporary history ensued. Looking for the Lost Boys, as dubbed by national publications, locals, professional spelunkers, the National Guard, and even psychics, all who arrived in town to the caves as they began their long search that lasted months. Locals began to speculate that the boys had become trapped by a possible cave-in, deep underground, and met their demise. Unfortunately, unfortunately, no traces of such a cave-in was ever found along with no shovels, flashlights, or anything else. Rumors began to float throughout the local and national media chains that the boys were said to be hiding, or deceased in or around the many buildings throughout the town, as predicted by several psychics. After all of the buildings, outhouses, and storage facilities were searched, possible leads and rumors started to dissipate until a stranger came to town. The idea of a traveler being spotted isn't out of the question for a town of Hannibal, as it is a popular tourist attraction, and the boyhood home of acclaimed American author and satirist, 
Samuel Longhorn Clemens, better known by his pen name, Mark Twain. But it was this particular stranger that brought a new element to the boy's disappearance. It had been apparent that the man had appeared in town and disappeared again just as quickly as speculations flew that maybe he had something to do with the boys. Evidently, the man spent most of his time in the woods around the area, and it was possible that the boys also paid a visit to the very same forest and not near the caves at all. The man was also witnessed by several locals to provide aid in the search, but disappeared shortly after. Other speculations and rumors in town had been said that prolific serial killer John Wayne Gacy was somehow involved in the boy's disappearance and could have been the identity of the mysterious stranger. With that in mind, it could be argued that the boys could be very well have been Gacy's very first victims and left unidentified. Gacy has been known to visit the area from time to time and has been responsible for the vicious sexual assaults, acts of torture, and murder of 33 boys and men in and around the Chicago area from 1972 to 1978, before being executed by lethal injection on May 10, 1994, exactly 27 years on the day that the boys went missing. For geographic logistics, Hannibal is located about 300 miles from Gacy's home in Illinois, so the theory of Gacy having something to do with the boys isn't out of the realm of possibility. Minnesota-based author John Wingett wrote two books about the case, The Lost Boys of Hannibal and Soul Speak, Missing, that go into great detail about the theory of how the boys met their demise and why he believes that John Wayne Gacy is involved. Wingett explained in an interview with Hannibal's local newspaper, the Hannibal Courier Post, that he had been contacted by several psychics and all three had visited the place where the boys would have been at the cave and they believed that Gacy kidnapped, sodomized, tortured, and killed the boys. The last time the caves were searched for the boys was back in 2006 when construction workers arrived to continue working in the caves when they discovered a new entrance. Experts are called in and mapped out new trails inside the cave. However, there were still no signs of the boys. 54 years later, the case remains cold and unsolved. No other explorations have been made. Maybe one day the lost boys won't be lost anymore. And will receive a proper burial. One in which they deserve. 